Now, here's something I want you to use with special care. With special care. Everything you give is me. It's treated with equal contempt. Yes, I know, but that's an underwater camera. It takes eight pictures in rapid succession by pressing that button there. Is that clever? But if you can take pictures in the dark with an infrared film, yes. When a group of villains steal two nuclear bombs, there's only one man who can stop them. Bond. James Bond. Join us as we chat about the movie that Alan watches every day, a word that makes it creepier when an old guy dates a younger woman, and the magic of salt water as lubricant. Then we find out if 1965's Thunderball stands the test of time. Time James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut. Alan says as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Noah. Alan Noah. You serious? You didn't start with me? It's brief. James Brief. I guess your name just makes more sense to to do in the Bond, James Bond kind of a way. Because, you know, James B. Single syllable last name. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. Welcome to the test of time, everybody. I'm Alan Noah. You're James Brief. Neither one of us are James Bond. But we are going to talk about three James Bond movies in a row. Thunderball this week, then Moonraker, then GoldenEye. And of course, we're doing that because No Time to Die is actually really coming out now in October 2021 after like the longest delay ever. Like it was supposed to come out in 2019. People forget that. It was then delayed to early 2020, but originally this movie was supposed to come out in 2019. Oh, I remember, because the delay of No Time to Die is delayed exactly as long as the episode for the Test of Time podcast in honor of No Time to Die. Our Moonraker episode, our Thunderbolt episode, our GoldenEye episode have been delayed exactly as long as No Time to Die. So we feel Daniel Craig's pain. Not really, because Daniel Craig got paid millions of dollars. We get paid, don't we? Uh, You keep saying the check is coming. Oh, yeah, sure. What's a check? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not totally sure about this. I was just trying to Google it and I couldn't find it. But I think No Time to Die has had the longest delay of any movie that was supposed to come to theaters and is still coming to theaters because of COVID. Like Black Widow was like a year and change and... Um, Shang-Chi, I think, was about a year. Like, a lot of movies have been postponed a year or more, but No Time to Die is like a year and a half or, you know, two years if you count the 2019 release date. This is a long time. And also, even before COVID, there was going to be a long gap between Spectre and No Time to Die just because Daniel Craig was kind of mad about the last movie and they switched directors and things. So, It's a long gap in between Bond movies, and I'm kind of excited to see No Time to Die. I would like to go see it in the theater. I might. Do you think you will? I mean, my favorite thing about the movie theater is not the big screen, because, you know, honestly, like home theaters have just gotten so good that you can't get the theater experience. But what I miss is that opening night crowded. uh, Everyone is laughing. Everyone is gasping together. It's just a fascinating thing to experience. You can't do that now. And I'm not ready to do that now In in a closed indoor theater on opening night. However, could I go to a matinee, it, I think a couple of weeks afterwards, and, and sit, you know, further away from people? Maybe. Have you not gone to a movie yet? Oh, I have not gone to a movie, but, like, what film would I want to see in the theater? Like, you did that thing where AMC, like, you could rent out the whole theater, and you and, like, a, a couple other families, you guys did it. Because it was really cheap, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that for Black Widow and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. We rented out a theater. It's crazy cheap. I mean, by me on Long Island, the first time we did it, it was $300. The second time we did it, it was $200. And 
you get 20 people. So yeah, that's like a couple of families. They're people we know and trust and are vaccinated and people in our bubble. And at $300 for the theater, it's $15 a person. And at $200 a rental, it's 10 bucks a person. That's cheaper than it is to normally go to a movie. And yeah, I felt very comfortable to do that. I would do that for James Bond, but then that's like not a family movie, so that would require more people and it would be a little bit more of a hassle. I always see the James Bond movies in the theater with my stepdad, Chuck. That's our thing. We've been doing it, I think, since GoldenEye. And, you know, he's older, he's in a higher risk group, he's worried about COVID. But I asked him literally the same thing you just said, like, would you want to go at like a Tuesday afternoon or, you know, some random time when there was not going to be a crowd? And he was like, yeah, I would do that. We don't care about popcorn. We can wear masks. So we might do that, uh, you know, in a couple weeks and, and go see this movie. You know, if you're wearing a mask, you could be going to a regular theater anyway. Now that I think about it, I mean, I've gone on the subway. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in honor of No Time to Die, we are going to talk about three James Bond movies. And we had to do one of Sean Connery and one from Roger Moore and one from uh, Pierce Brosnan, George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton. Sorry, better luck next time. Uh, George Lazenby had one film, and Dalton had two films. So, you know, I mean, uh, I would have picked a Dalton film, but, you know, we just didn't do four four weeks of this. Right. But so when we were picking a Connery movie, you chose Thunderball. Why did you want to watch Thunderball? I picked it because I remembered exactly one thing about Thunderball. Uh, what I remembered was a really elaborate underwater battle between, like, two armies of scuba divers shooting spear guns. Whenever I saw it that one time, I remember thinking I'd never seen something like that before. I didn't remember anything else about the film, and I didn't even know why it was called Thunderball. You blink and you miss it, why the film's called Thunderball. Did, did you even catch that? Yeah, that's like the name of like the Operation Thunderball. Uh, Thunderball is actually the name of like the top of the cloud of a nuclear uh, nuclear bomb that that mushroom cloud. That thing is called a thunderball, and the film is about uh, hijacking two nuclear bombs. So that's why they codenamed it Thunderball. It's weird though because the name of the mushroom cloud is mushroom cloud. It doesn't need any extra names. Yeah, the name of this film doesn't really describe anything about this one. But in case you don't remember Thunderball, this is the 007 James Bond film with Sean Connery. And in this film, the evil Spectre organization, they've hijacked a top-secret fighter plane and they steal two atomic weapons. They threaten NATO, demanding a ransom of $100 billion. No, no, you're thinking of Austin Powers. And I don't even think that much money was a thing back in 1965. Okay, I, I believe you're right. My mistake. It's actually uh, $100 million that the Evil Spectre organization demands. Isn't it pounds? You're right. It is 100 million pounds. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. It's 100 million that uh, Dr. Evil had originally asked for in Austin Powers. But in this James Bond film, James Bond has to track down Emilio Largo, the Spectre villain in charge of this operation. And he even meets the beautiful Domino. There's a femme fatale. There's lots of villains galore. And in the end, he stops Largo. He does. So this, I know, was a big hit in the Bond franchise. This is the fourth movie to star Sean Connery and the fourth James Bond movie in general. And people really liked this movie when it came out, right? Yeah, I mean, to give it a little context, the James Bond character was very well known. The Ian Fleming novels were very, very popular. People were really excited about these. And Thunderball was the fourth one. It had a really big budget at a $9 million budget. The budget of this was bigger than all three of the first films all put together. Uh, they brought back the original director, Terrence Young, and it, with its $9 million budget, it actually wound up earning $141 million worldwide. And it actually surpassed the earnings of the first three films uh, combined. And it actually um, became the third highest grossing film in 1965. Wow. The top two films, let me see if you could uh, think of them. The number one film in 1965 is a family-friendly movie that involves Nazis. 
The Sound of Music. You're correct. Very good. And the number two film, a film I have not seen, I'm going to guess you have not seen. It's about a Russian doctor that won five Oscars and was nominated for five more, including Best Picture. I don't know. Think of a fancy film you know is very fancy, but you've never seen that starts with Doctor. Dr. Zhivago? That's correct. I watch Dr. Zhivago every day. Oh, damn it. I thought you never saw it. No, no. I literally watch it every morning. First thing I do. I think it's weird that you don't, to be honest. Finally, there's an interesting stat on IMDb that says that this may be the actually most popular Bond movie in terms of ticket sales, not box office earnings, but apparently uh, there were 140 million tickets sold to see this film. Amazing. Wow, that is impressive. And the movie opens with a funeral scene for the cold open, and it's supposedly this funeral of one of James Bond's rival spies, and he's watching this widow who's crying and upset at the funeral, but he's not so sure about this widow, and he then follows her, and then he punches her, and it's not the widow. It is the guy who was supposed to be dead in this funeral, and he says that he knew it was a woman because she opened her own car door at the funeral, and no woman would ever do such a thing, so that's how he knew that it was a guy. There are a couple problematic uh, parts in this film. (laughs) That is one of them, dealing with uh, sexuality and genders. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But he punches the widow in the face, which is, it's a real wow moment. Because she's got the schmata on her head, and it's this grieving widow. (laughs) James Bond just... Just like throws a like right in her face, and you know she balls, she falls over. But then you realize that it's a man, so I guess retroactively that makes it okay? Question mark. But also, just the whole fight sequence is so weird. They speed up the footage a lot, and it's really strange. It's really distracting. There's also a jump cut where the the editing just doesn't line up, and it's noticeable. Did you notice that? I absolutely noticed that. And this is like one of the first times I've noticed something like this, because you always notice these little, did you notice the little part of green screen in the corner here? I never noticed these things, (laughs) but this one, it was really glaring. And I was thinking they combined like four different takes of this scene, and the lighting is not exactly the same in all four takes. And I know what you mean about the speeding up. It's not like some comical Benny Hill speeding up. It's like 1.1 times speed. It's weird. It is very, very weird. Then he like leaves after he kills the guy and he's like running on like a rooftop and then some other guys are chasing him and he just gets a jetpack and flies away. And the only thing I could think was, where the hell did this jetpack come from? Like, it's a huge thing. It's not like, you know, like a gadget that he had, like, on his belt or something that, like, became larger. He just picks it up, and then he's got a freaking jetpack, and he just goes from, like, the top of the building over to where he parked the car right in front. It's not like he goes, like, on, like, an epic adventure through a city or something. He just barely goes anywhere. Well, there's a reason for that. All of the special effects in this film, which won an Oscar for his best special effects, obviously there's no CGI. They're all real. And this jetpack, this was a real jetpack that could fly for like 21 seconds, according to the, I think it was Wikipedia I read this on. And (laughs) it was a stuntman and you actually see the footage of him and he lands and watching it, I was pretty impressed because I was like, this is actually pretty neat. But you're right. It is weird that he uses this huge thing to basically go down a building which you know can he use like maybe a parachute or a rope or something like that it's just an anticlimactic use of a jetpack but then when he gets to the car the woman who he's with is there and they like speed away but oh no there's bad guys after him and then he like has a hose come out of the back of his car that just kind of like sprays the bad guys and then they fall over and then it goes into the opening credits theme which i was like That's it? He just, like, wets them and they fall over? It was a weird choice, not just because, uh, yeah, why is he wetting them? 
I was even thinking, how do you have that much water for this much pressure inside a small car? I was really thinking that just because I was thinking there's so many things it could throw out tiny ball bearings. It, it could shoot out guns. You know, I thought that would be the obvious one. Sure. But I did think that was weird. And then, of course, we go into the opening credits, which follows the James Bond formula of a song. Usually, I think it's always titled the name of the film, or usually titled the name of the film. Not always. Not with the Daniel Craig movies. Most of the time. Okay, usually titled the the name of the film. It's usually like a almost kind of a groovy, trippy little silhouette of women. And uh, it's kind of campy or like what the 60s would think of as seductive it's weird i honestly usually think of them as kind of boring but uh it's kind of lava lampy yeah i guess that's a good way to describe it i like this theme song i like thunderball by sir tom jones i think this is one of the better ones yeah, they're really hit or miss. Uh, I did like, I remember the Adele one was very good. Yes, Skyfall, that was a very good one. They are hit or miss, but this one has like a really long note that Tom Jones holds at the end, and apparently he passed out when recording it, which is cool, kind of, uh, you know, that he was able to hold the note that long. That's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then the movie goes to this Spectre meeting, and it's really just right out of Austin Powers, colon, International Man of Mystery, where there's a evil head guy who's stroking a cat, and you don't see his face. That's Blofeld. He's the leader of Spectre, and he kills one guy because he's accused of embezzling. He, like, pushes a button, and then that guy, like, falls into fire, and then they continue right on with the meeting. I mean, this is, like, exactly what Michael Myers parodied in Austin Powers. Oh, exactly. And remember, Thunderball is an incredibly popular film. And you and I, we were too young to instantly recognize. We knew it was James Bond he was parodying, but we didn't know all these tiny references. But, you know, this was incredibly uh, popular. So I think older audiences may have understood it more. That's true. The thing about Austin Powers is that it works and is funny even if you've never seen Thunderball or any of the old James Bond movies. It's funny on its own. It's funnier if you get the references. But here in this meeting, we get the idea of the plot, which is that this number two guy is going to steal two bombs and hold the world hostage. You know, they will extort some huge ransom by threatening to blow up some cities. He says, my man Count Lippy is going to help us with this plan. And then it cuts to Count Lippy, who's at a spa, and he just walks into this room where James Bond is getting a massage. And it's really, really just random and coincidence. Like, it seems like it's a pure coincidence that this bad guy happens to be at the same spa as James Bond. Also, who walks into the room while someone else is getting a massage? That's like a really dumb thing to do. You know, there's a lot of problems with this whole massage scene. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. that's, that's one of them. There's this beautiful woman that, that had been giving him a massage. Right after the massage, Bond, like, puts his arm around her and pulls her in for a kiss. And she's like, James. And it is it is even, even one of these, like, oh, James. Like, she's like, hey, bastard. Like, get the fuck off of me. She shakes her head and is like, mm, mm, mm. She is very clearly saying no. And Bond kisses her for like, I don't know, like a five Mississippi count. It is really, really aggressive. And then she straps him down into like this machine that's going to like extend his spine. And she says that it's the first time she's felt truly safe all day. All of this is terrible. And the director of No Time to Die, Kari Fukunaga, uh, he said that Connery's Bond is basically a rapist and he calls out Thunderball. I'm guessing he's referring to this interaction with this woman and he's right. Well, what happens next is is equally problematic. He's on this stretching machine, which is a weird machine, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, to be left unsupervised, but he is left unsupervised, and the stretching machine is stretched up to, like, basically, it reminds me of the Princess Bride, essentially, when they yeah. turns the machine up to 50. Mm-hmm. Not 50! Right. And Bond is somehow not killed, but she runs back in and turns the machine off, and she's like, oh, I'm so upset. 
I'm so sorry. And I'm going to get in so much trouble. And then do you remember the line that Bond says? I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says that he will not tell what happened for a price. Oh, oh, he says, my silence can be bought. And then she says, no, 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 you don't mean. And he says, oh, yes, I do. And then they go into the steam room and have sex. All of this is terrible. This is horribly problematic. Carrie Fukunaga is absolutely right. This guy is basically a rapist. And it does just put like a bad taste in your mouth watching this movie. Or it did for me. He just like sleeps with this woman under threat of being fired. It's a completely useless reason to do this for this character. Fine, have him sleep with this masseuse who's incredibly attracted to him. Do that, he's so suave. It's Sean Connery, he's a good-looking guy, whatever. It's so weird. Yeah, this is not a thing where James Bond is such a suave ladies' man that women throw themselves at him. This is him forcing himself and manipulating this woman to sleep with him that's problematic. That is horrible. And it's a bad way to start the movie. But then we get into basically the plot of the film, which is Spectre's plot to steal the uh, steal this bomb. There's going to be this military demonstration of this uh, the top secret spy plane, uh, some kind of fighter jet that's going to be armed with two atomic weapons. And it's going to be doing some kind of demonstration piloted by this very esteemed French pilot, this guy named uh, Durval. And we see Durval, and he's with this beautiful woman, his lover, and he's getting dressed up in his pilot uniform. And then he answers the door, and some guy sprays some deadly gas in his face. And but Durval, not just some guy. It's him. Oh, exactly. Yes, he opens the door, and it's his double. And the double sprays uh, some spray in his face, and he falls backwards, dead. So now we find out also that the lover was in on it, because after he dies, she's like, what took you guys so long, or whatever. And basically the plan is this guy takes over Durval's uh, body, and he's going to be able to go on this fighter plane. And the fighter plane takes off, as usual. And the guy that they think is Durval, he's able to incapacitate the entire crew. It's kind of clever. He basically turns on uh, some kind of depressurization. Uh, I don't get the apparatus of how he did it, but I like the fact that it was depressurization. It was kind of a clever way to incapacitate everyone at once. No, 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 no. He gives them all poison gas that he has on his belt that he just like puts into the part of the dashboard where you insert the poison gas that kills everybody. It's really weird. It's the same gas that he uses on the real Durval. He just has a little canister of it, and he, like, puts it right there in the plane and, like, in this one spot. It's very, very strange. Oh, I totally misread that. I thought it was depressurization or something. I'm like, ah, very, very nice and scientific. I don't get how he's doing it by hooking up this tube, but I also don't get how he had access to the airway that everyone's breathing. It's weird. It is really, really weird. But I liked it when I had my ignorance, so you ruined it retroactively, Al. I have a tendency to do that. My bad. But then this guy lands the plane in the water. Right. And he goes underwater and it takes its time, like showing you how they get the bombs off of the plane. And then we see Largo go down and he kills this uh, impersonator, this fake Durval, because he asked for more money. So he lets him die. And they hide the plane with this like fake seaweed. They hammer the net with the fake seaweed into the ocean floor, which I was like, is that going to work or is that just going to like, you know, move as soon as the tide comes or a fish swims by? I don't know. But like, I appreciated that they were showing you like the details of their plan and how it was working. It maybe goes on a little too long, but also you do figure that these are real people who are really underwater probably not at the bottom of the ocean, but it's still like impressive watching all of this. Oh, I think whoever the director of photography of specifically the underwater scenes, and there's a lot of underwater scenes, did a fantastic job. I thought the underwater scenes were really great. And like I said before, these are all practical effects. So, you know, obviously not a working plane, but they had a real scale size model of an airplane underwater and they were putting this net over it. I thought it was cool. It is cool. Uh, but then there's like this big meeting with all of the double O's in London because, you know, Spectre has 
announce that they have these bombs and they want their ransom money. And all of the agents are given these dossiers and Bond looks at his dossier and sees a picture of Durval with his sister. And he knows who Durval is because he saw the real Durval dead in the spa that he was at because, you know, after they killed him, they brought the body there. So then he decides, I need to go and find his sister and she's in Nassau, in the Bahamas. And this is a very large leap in logic. You know, he sees this one picture of this guy and his sister. He knows the guy is dead. He knows that they use the guy to get the bombs. So he thinks that the sister must be a lead. Why? Why must the sister be a lead? There's no logic to it. And the other characters call him out and basically say, oh, you just want to go investigate this lead because his sister is hot, which is true. But that's it. That's the only reason he goes to the Bahamas. And it's weird because when they open this uh, this folder of top secret information, there could be anything in there. It was a weird thing that he's like, ah, I need to go to Nassau, Bahamas. It's very strange. And there's no like spy work. There's no investigation. There's no anything other than he sees this one picture and is like, that's where I'm going. Yeah, I mean, if they did it today, it would be her last known IP address was in Nassau, Bahamas. I'm going to go investigate that place. You know, I think they did a, a poor job in this particular scene. But yeah, we go over to the Bahamas and this beautiful woman is uh, seen snorkeling and James... Scuba diving. Well, she's basically doing uh, deep water diving, which is where you hold your breath. These people will do it like for minutes at a time. It's a whole sport. And she's going down, but her fin gets caught in some kind of coral. Luckily, James Bond is there, and he rescues her, so they make friends. Right. And then Bond joins her for a drink at the pool, and they're flirting because that's what James Bond does. And then he goes to a casino later that night, and he sees her again. And she is there with Largo, who's number two from Spectre, the guy who's doing the whole bomb plot thing. And Domino tells Bond that Largo is her guardian. And I found that word to be so weird. As a father, whenever there's something at like the kid's school, they say, you know, parents or guardians sign up for the cookie sale or whatever. But like, is he her guardian? Is he like her protector or they're a couple and they're sleeping together? Because they also refer to her as his mistress. At one point, she says that uh, he's her uncle. Like, he's a lot of different things. And it's all weird and creepy, especially if they are, in fact, having sex. Well, they definitely are. And he even says to her, you've given me lots of pleasure you know, later to her. It basically reminds me of that scene in Pretty Woman when she's in the, you know, the back office and he's like, we can assume you're his niece. And, you know, they're basically trying to say, yeah, he's not this older guy, uh, you know, banging this hot 20-something. But Guardian is a weird one. Just say it's his niece and, you know, uh, you know, everyone looks the other way, which is weird. But I guess she's his younger family. Guardian is weird. It's so weird. It's so weird. If you're dating a woman who's like 40 years younger than you, that's a whole other thing, but don't just say that you're her guardian. Like, that only makes it worse. It does not make anything any better. But Bond and Largo know who the other one is. Bond knows that Largo is Inspector, and Largo knows that Bond is in MI6, and they still, like, are buddies, and Largo invites him over to his place later and is telling Domino to go hang out with him, and it's really bizarre. I hate this trope in James Bond films. And he do, they do this a lot. I remember there was a Timothy Dalton one, uh, the one where he uh, goes to the drug dealers. I think that's License to Kill. And it's weird because at some point they know they're enemies, but they're kind of living on the other's estate. But they also do something where they play this card game against each other. Do you know what card game they were playing against each other, Al? Uh, I assume it was War. No, it's a game called Baccarat. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it, but I don't know how it works or how it's played. And I was uh, 
Oh, he wins. Okay, good. Right. It's a weird game. I mean, it's not weird. It's basically uh, closest to nine wins and face cards in 10 are worth zero. So it's weird because Largo will be like, I have eight. And Bond goes, nine. And there are all these puns like James Bond is like, ah, I see it's the specter in your eye. And... He's like, what did you say? Oh, I said the specter of defeat or something like that. It's really, it's corny, but it's kind of fun. But it's like, you know, you're in a film right right now. You know, you're a little, I was taken out of it, but I had fun with it. I guess. I mean, Bond makes puns, so okay. But Bond meets up with his CIA friend, Felix Leiter, who's been in a bunch of the James Bond movies, usually with different actors. Uh, and Q is there, and Q uh, gives him these gadgets. One is this, like, little thing that Bond can put in his mouth, and then he can breathe underwater for extended periods of time. I realized when I watched the uh, Thunderball that that was the second thing, and the only other thing that I remembered about this film. I saw that rebreather thing when I was a kid, and I thought about it for years. I thought it was fascinating. It basically looked like the aerosol that like an inhaler cartridge is in. It was basically two of those that you almost kind of bite on with like a stick attached to it. And that's enough oxygen for like four minutes of air. And it's so well designed. I thought it was so clever. And I still watching it again, knowing this technology doesn't exist, because if it did, it would be real by now. I just think it's such a clever little James Bond device. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly fake but it is cool and it's a lot cooler than one of the other things that Q gives him which is a camera that can take eight eight James pictures underwater also it takes him in infrared in the dark so that is pretty cool in 1965 for us you know you could probably do that with anything you know in one of the latest uh, Daniel Craig films uh, the young new Q was basically like I don't have anything to give you it's like all in your phone you know all the stuff we used to give you it's, it's all right there and because Largo knows that Bond is MI6 and is on the island looking for the bombs he's going after him but not like directly he's like going into his hotel room because Bond is not like, you know, hiding or anything. He's just staying at this hotel as James Bond and his room next door is with his assistant Paula and Largo's henchmen break into the hotel room. They kidnap Paula. They take her back to uh, Largo's lair and we find out later that she takes like a poison pill, cyanide capsule or whatever so that she can't be interrogated. And Bond finds her and is like, huh, oh well. And it's like, wait, she was like your liaison. She was your partner. She was your buddy. She was helping you down there. And she's killed and he just doesn't care at all. I didn't really see that. I, I just saw he does check her, see she's dead. And he winds up mentioning it to either Felix or some other handler. He's like, Paul is dead. I thought he was just more like, I can't really do anything about this now. I got to run after this other guy. But I could see it the other way, too. I, I just didn't catch it that way. Well, I think it's also accentuated by what happens next, where Bond meets this woman, Fiona, who was the woman who betrayed Derval earlier in the movie. And she picks him up and she drives really fast. And then the next day, Bond finds her in his hotel room and she's in the bathtub naked. And she's like, oh, get me something to put on. And he hands her shoes. I thought that was kind of funny. That's like being like sexy and, you know, kind of charming and funny or whatever. I mean, let's also call it, I mean, the audacity of her to come in there. I mean, what if she, you're a woman and you walk in and Sean Connery is lying on your bed in a sexy pose? I mean, that is not okay. And this woman is naked in his bathtub. This is true. And they sleep together. And then like right after they have sex, she reveals that she's a villain and she's there to like kidnap him. And it turns really quickly from like, like, oh, this is fun. Let's have sex to, oh, now I'm here to kill you. Well, I didn't enjoy sleeping with you. Well, neither did I. I hated every second of it. I only did it for, for queen and country. They're just sniping at each other back and forth. When I saw this, I thought that uh, 
That was 1965's way of kind of dealing with the sex. I don't remember how they do it in Moonraker, but I remember there are references to try to modernize it a little bit in uh, in Goldeneye. In this one, I guess he's trying to say, yes, I slept with you, but it was only transactional. I was just trying to get something out of you. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think that it's in response to something from either from Russia with Love or Goldfinger, where some movie critic said that James Bond sleeps with a character, she was bad, and then she turns good, and that's unrealistic. So in this movie, when she's saying, what, you think you could change me just by sleeping with me? That's not how it works. It's kind of like a reference to this one critic who said this one thing about this other movie and trying to redeem it in some way. I guess it's okay, but then... There's this chase where Bond escapes from Fiona and then she captures him again. And then one of the guys is trying to shoot Bond, but Bond like turns at the last second while he's dancing with Fiona and Fiona takes a bullet in the back. And then Bond just like dumps her and then says something to like these other people like, oh, do you mind if my date sits down here? She's just dead and then walks away like while leaving a corpse in like this bar. I do remember that Arnold Schwarzenegger does the exact same thing in Commando. He breaks some guy's neck on an airplane, then puts a hat on his face and just tells the uh, flight attendant, says, please don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Yeah. For some reason, it's worse when it's a woman. Maybe it shouldn't be. Hashtag feminism? Question mark? I don't know. But like, it just, it feels like all of the female characters in this movie are expendable. And that stinks. But meanwhile, Bond still has to find these nuclear weapons because that's what he's there to do. And he and Leiter take a helicopter out and they're looking in the ocean trying to find this plane. And while they're in the helicopter, they're talking about like, where could it be? Is it over here? No, it's only uh, sharks over here. And these are the bad sharks and whatever. And they're having this totally casual conversation while the helicopter is in midair and they're not wearing headphones. You can't do that. That's not how it works. You have to be wearing the headsets and speaking to each other that way. Otherwise, all you will hear is... Like, there's no way you can have just a normal, casual conversation without the headsets. I get it that maybe Sean Connery looks less handsome if he's wearing that big, goofy headset. But no, no, that's what they need to be wearing. True. And by the way, I did not know we had a professional voice actor, Michael Winslow, in the studio tonight. No, no, that was me doing the helicopter sounds. Wow. Can you give us another second of that, please? Wow. It's like I'm in transport to Vietnam 1968, you know? Sorry? I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, don't worry about it. But uh, Bond, he scuba dives down, and he goes on the net. We still see that the pilot is there, dead. I thought that was kind of uh, cool to show the whole crew kind of dead there. But the bombs are gone. Right. And so now Bond is like, okay, he's really got to go and find these bombs. He thinks they're on Largo's boat, the Disco Volante, which is a good name for a boat. And Bond meets up with Domino. They have sex underwater, like while scuba-ing. And I could only think that that's got to be terrible. You have the tank on your back. You've got no leverage underwater. I just feel like this is not good. Uh, You forgot the magic of saltwater lubrication. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to feel okay for anybody. Uh, But that's what happens. And then after they have sex, then Bond says to Domino, oh, by the way, Largo killed your brother. And, you know, she's upset about that because she loved her brother. She's talked about how much she loved her brother and what a good person he was. And now she says, "Okay, well, I'll do whatever I can to help you get Largo. Cool. That's nice. But Bond is really putting her in harm's way by asking her to, like, spy on Largo. She says that she's okay with that because she wants to to take him down for killing her brother. And this is where things really pick up. It's the third act. And Largo's moving these bombs. The plan is to bomb Miami. That's the city that they're going to blow up. And Bond finds them. He, like, kind of sneaks in with Largo's men because they're all wearing scuba gear. So 
you know, it's kind of easy to just kind of blend in with that crowd. Yeah, another Austin Powers thing when he basically steals the costumes and just goes right into Dr. Evil's lair. But with a scuba mask and everything, it's even more believable that, like, yeah, no one would notice until eventually Largo does see him and is like, hey, get him. And of course, he can't say, hey, get him because they're underwater and he just kind of points and, you know, the other guys go after him and Bond escapes. He calls for backup. Lighter calls in, like, the army from America because they're in the Caribbean. I assume they're American people who show up. Well, I'd imagine it's the Marines or the Navy in this case. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's this like huge epic battle between like the good guys and the bad guys underwater, fighting, wrestling, shooting spear guns at each other. And I have to say that generally, as a rule, I don't love it in movies where the big climactic showdown is an army of anonymous good guys versus an army of anonymous bad guys. I feel like I've just seen that in so many movies. It just becomes like hokey and eye-rolly at this point. But that said, this scene is cool because again, these are real human beings underwater fighting. And yes, I know that the spear guns aren't real and they're not really murdering each other, but it looks cool. It looks intense. The way that they kill each other by like cutting off like their oxygen supply is just like a horrible way to die. And uh, even though this battle scene is probably too long, I did find it like really cool to watch. Yeah, I think it's really well done. And I thought the same thing. I thought the kind of deaths were almost like you could kind of feel them. Like the guy is uh, hit by a spear gun underwater or his oxygen tank is pierced. And I agree with you. It was was a gripping scene. And James Bond, he has the special ability. So everyone is kind of flipping around in their flippers. But James Bond (laughs) kind of, he has one of those like underwater one man uh, electronic propeller things and he's basically zooming by everyone. He's able to pull off a few masks of the Spectre guys so that they would presumably either die or try to sur- swim to the surface. And uh, it's pretty cool. But Bond gets on the boat, and now we have our final showdown. Right. And Largo is, like, speeding the boat towards Miami. And again, with the sped-up footage, it's like, I get it because they wanted it to be more thrilling and to show speed but the sped up footage just doesn't work. It just makes it look hokey and stupid. Well, they did it wrong. I mean, imagine you're speeding towards uh, a pier. If you're half a mile out, even speeding, it's not that quick. It's not that thrilling. It's still going to take out 30 seconds. But instead of speeding up two or three times, they speed it up like eight times. It's something comically fast. And also, it's just a problem with the green screens. They're just not there in 1965. Even earlier, there's a couple driving scenes that look really hokey. They're just not there with the green screen technology. And this ability, they're trying to look out the uh, the captain's window and, and you can see this approaching rock and it's it's kind of thrilling but you're right it's just hokey looking this particular special effect does not work right and then also largo has domino like tied up in her cabin and he's like torturing her and then some random guy shows up and is like i can't watch this i'm going to rescue you and like we don't know who this random guy is He was the scientist that they got because you're going to need a scientist when you steal some atom bombs. I think he knows he's working for bad guys or maybe he was kidnapped or maybe he was just kind of doing it for the money. But for whatever reason, he has a change of heart because it's one of these I didn't sign up for this kind of moments. And he uh, rescues uh, Domino. And then Largo's about to kill James Bond, but because uh, Domino is freed, she is able to shoot Largo, avenging her brother and saving James Bond at the same time. Right. It's cool that Domino has that moment, but it's just weird that before that she had to be tortured and then saved by this like random F-level character. Right. And it's really weird because we are now towards the end of the film now. Largo is dead and basically everything has been saved, but they're on a speeding boat heading towards a rock. All three of them decide to jump off. And James Bond's even like, who is this man? She's like, I don't know. He's a man who rescued me downstairs. (laughs) 
it's so bad that she's like, I have no idea who this guy is. Right, right. So the three of them jump off the boat. The boat is destroyed. And you never see the, the third guy again. Like, we don't find out what happens to him. Yeah, it's so weird. Also, this boat explodes in the rocks. There was a nuclear bomb on that boat that just rammed at full speed into these rocks. I understand that maybe it needs to, like, you know, be detonated in a certain way, but also probably not great to, like, have a nuclear bomb on a speeding boat go crashing into rocks near Miami. Well, it's not going to go off. A nuclear explosion is is complicated. It's not going to go off. It wasn't set. That's not going to happen. But if it's a large enough explosion, could they leak some plutonium or uranium or something? It would be uranium back then, but possibly. But probably not as dangerous as, as you think, but uh, probably not a great thing. Right. But that's basically the end because we don't see that weird doctor again. Bond and Domino, they've made it to a raft. They don't try to find that doctor guy or say, hey, there's a raft here. You know, you you could come over here. And you kind of think, or at least I thought, okay, this is where the film's going to end. And they're just going to kind of, you know, have sex in the raft or something. But no, there's actually one more kind of really neat uh, James Bond stunt. And he sets off this balloon. And it's a stunt straight out of a modern film. What film did this remind you of? Uh, I don't know. I'm drawing oh, a blank. Oh, it was The Dark Knight. Don't you remember this part? <gasps> oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. And they even mentioned that in The Dark Knight that the CIA in the 60s used to do this. Because basically, James Bond, uh, he releases a huge uh, balloon that flies like a quarter mile up and is attached by a tether. He puts on a vest and attaches this balloon to the vest. And an airplane flies by with a hook, grabs the rope below the balloon, and picks up James Bond and his female companion. Right. And that's it. Then goes right to end credits. It may be the fourth film in the James Bond franchise, but it's the first film that we've reviewed. So, Al, does 1965's Thunderball stand the test of time? I got to say, this movie's got problems. Like, a lot of them. The fact that Bond is basically a rapist. The fact that all the female characters are completely expendable and no one cares about them. Except for Domino, kind of, but also she's just there to, like, be the damsel in distress and the sex object, and that's basically it. So, you know, that is bad. Also, the plot of this movie really isn't great. Like, the first half hour where Bond is at this spa, none of that makes any sense. It's all terrible that he just happens to be at the spa with this specter villain. He does no spy work to find Largo at all. He just looks at a picture of a pretty lady and says, me go there to pretty girl. I mean, like, this is not expert spy craft. Also, the U.S. and the British government are paying the ransom. They're paying the ransom that Spectre wants. The million pounds in diamonds that has to be delivered to some secure location in the middle of the ocean, they're doing it. They're getting that. And yet Largo's still planning to blow up Miami? Like, that's a big problem that could be solved with one line of dialogue where Largo or someone says, we don't care that they're going to pay us. We're going to blow up the city anyway. But they never say that. And that's a big problem because we, the audience, know that the governments are going to pay the ransom. So there are really no stakes otherwise if Largo is going to just collect the ransom money and not blow up the city. Like, that's a big, big problem that's just not addressed at all. Actually, I can answer that. There is a deleted scene that was, oh, rather, in the original script that they never filmed. It's supposed to be at the end of the film, and it's a scene of a submarine, a Spectre submarine. It's, like, labeled Spectre, so you know it's the bad guys. Convenient. Yeah, they're at the bottom of the ocean, and they're picking up this big bag that NATO had dropped down there, and the whole thing blows up. But that still doesn't answer the question of, is Spectre going to blow up a city even if they get the ransom payment? I don't think they would do that. I I think Spectre would honor that ransom, and they would return the bombs, only because they want to be able to hold the world hostage again. Well, then, in that case, then everything Bond's doing is pointless and meaningless. Because they're just going to pay him off? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, the the good guys are going to pay the ransom, and then the city of Miami is in no danger. So that is a really, really big plot hole. Also, 
while I do appreciate the fact that we see like so much of the mechanics of Spectre's plan and how they made a guy like go through all this plastic surgery so he looks like the pilot who's going to be on the plane and then they're going to hide the bombs and then his boat is actually like two boats and he can drop half of the boat and then speed off. Like they spent a ton of money stealing these nuclear bombs. Did they spend more than 100 million pounds worth? It seems like it's really, really intricate. Also, Largo, if he's the bad guy who's in charge of this operation, maybe lay low for a little bit? Maybe don't be hanging out at the casino, like, throwing money at Baccarat, like, if you're planning to possibly blow up a city, you know? Also, why did he take Derval's sister as his lover? Why would he do that? That's not a smart strategic move for him. Yeah, she's pretty, but, like... That doesn't make any sense. We have no reason why that happens. None of the mechanics of like the A to B to C make any sense in this movie. And I think that, no, it doesn't stand the test of time. While I appreciated the underwater scenes and I love the theme song, I think there's just a lot in here that doesn't work. What do you think, James? I agree with a lot of what you're saying, that the movie just has uh, plot problems, and it's just completely problematic. Uh, And to its credit, I think the franchise realizes this eventually and does correct its course. But my real problem with this film, unfortunately, in a real test of time point of view, is that Austin Powers changed the formula for this stuff, that you really can't do your typical Roger Moore, James Bond, uh, Sean Connery, Timothy Dalton kind of formula anymore. It just doesn't work. You can't do this, we're going to hijack a bomb and hold the world ransom. Like, I don't know if this is exactly the film that this is parodying, but I find myself kind of chuckling at this part because through no fault of its own, but it just hasn't aged well. So that's that's a point against it. But I have to say that it's a really thrilling film a lot of parts. I think the action scenes are fantastic. I think the practical effects are cool. We didn't mention uh, but when there's this huge scuba diving thing. Before then, you see this thing straight out of World War II. There's like 35 paratroopers that come out. It's a cool scene. And that's definitely 35 people doing that. So there's a lot of eye candy. I completely understand why this was an incredibly popular film in 1965. There's so many like C and, and B and D level cap that I, I know Largo, but there were so many other little villains I couldn't keep up with them. It's it's not a problem necessarily with the film in 1965. I just think that it's just not the way films are made today. I think it's a fun film. I actually do think there's a lot of things. If you like the old James Bond formula, I think you'll like this film with its flaws. And if you're a real James Bond completist, you gotta see this film. I mean, it's it's really the formula of an old James Bond film before you know. I'd say Pierce Brosnan, but certainly Daniel Craig. But as a film in and of itself, not just for the uh, things that Kari Fukugawa had talked about, but I think more the plot parts that you're talking about. It's a little bit too long. And, you know, if someone's never seen a James Bond film, I'm not showing this before some of the other films I would I would show them. So for that reason alone, know that this unfortunately is not a film that was as thrilling as when I saw it when I was a teenager. So I would say, no, it does not stand the test of time. Yeah, it's a shame. But maybe we'll have better luck next week when we watch a Roger Moore James Bond movie, Moonraker. That should be fun because, you know, space lasers. I've never seen this film, have you? I have. I have seen every single James Bond movie. So, yes, I have seen it. It's been a while, but uh, I have seen it. I'm guessing you'll like it because there's space in it. Spoiler alert. And you love space. Space, 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 space. (laughs) But... Until then, we want to know your thoughts about Thunderball, about James Bond, Connery, Moore, all of them. Are you planning to see No Time to Die? Are you going to go to the theater? Let us know. Talk to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us, the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.